starting a new sermon series today, calling it Radiant Faith in the Furnace, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. What I love about this great letter from Peter, because not only did Peter have to learn firsthand how much he needed grace in often painful ways, he's, he's going to show us that the Christian life is all about Jesus, it's about a deeper understanding and standing firm in the grace we've received, but it's also about how then do we live among people who don't care about Jesus, even when it hurts. And so there's, there's a lot of great stuff in this letter that I'm excited about, but it's all grounded in the good news of the gospel. And so let me read the text. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look just at the introduction today, verses 1 and 2. Uh, it's amazing how much can be packed into a few words. But hear the word of our God speaking to us. It's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So that's like modern-day Turkey. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is the word of our God. It is true and trustworthy. And we've heard him speak to us today in love. So let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll study. Father, I pray you would strengthen us with the grace of Jesus this morning, uh, that we were loved by you, Father, before the foundation of the world, uh, that we were loved by the Holy Spirit who pursued us and, and convinced us of the truth of Jesus. And most of all, we were loved to death on a cross by your Son, who shed his blood for us. And, and so I do pray that you would multiply our understanding of your grace and your peace, which comes to us to even make us obedient. So I, I pray those things would be so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm calling this sermon series Radiant Faith in the Furnace. And, and part of where I'm getting that from is it's Psalm 34. Uh, Peter quotes Psalm 34 over and over again throughout this, this little letter. So I would just encourage you, it's a great, great psalm to pray as those who are suffering. But verse 5 says, those who look to the Lord are radiant. And so that's where I want to start. Do you know what it means to be radiant? Right, it's something we say about a bride on her wedding day. Right, the bride is radiant. She's glowing. She's overflowing with joy. Actually, this word is only used three times in, in the Old Testament. And the other two times have to do with God's over-the-top generosity to his people uh, that he is married to. <laughs> And those who look to him are radiant, right? They're overflowing with joy at who God is. Um, and that's what brides do when they're radiant, right? They're, they're basking in the affection of the one who has chosen them and bound themselves to each other till death do they part. Um, and that he and all that is his is hers. <laughs> she's, she's glowing. She's radiant, right? I was thinking about these things because we had Presbytery in the church where Bethany and I got married. Right, and so the psalmist says those who look to the Lord are radiant, and, that, and that's what Peter's going to help us do, is help us see the gospel and then by faith become a radiant people as we go through fiery trials, right? Not through easy times, but through these various things that are hard. Um, right? And remember who Peter is. He's the apostle. 
He's Jesus' famous fickle friend. The guy who bailed on Good Friday when Jesus needed him most, he cursed with as much strength as he could muster. I don't even know the guy. He then just weeps in shame as he sees Jesus led away to be crucified. But he's the same guy then who received extravagant grace in the immediate aftermath as Jesus deliberately went to him and restored him. And now, late 50s, early 60s, he's writing, he's a pastor, right? He's writing to a group of Christians who are suffering, who are being grieved by various hard things, various fiery trials. I mean, life is constantly challenging their faith in Jesus uh, through the relationships that they have. They aren't comfortable. And so Peter, this tender-hearted, gospel-soaked pastor, is writing to these Christians to say, here's how you go through fiery trials and come out radiant. How, you can go, how your faith is like gold being tested in the fire, and gold that comes out of the fire is radiant. It's glowing. It's, it's, it's reflecting the process that the one doing the melting has, has done to them. Right? God is in the process of helping us shine with the, the light of Christ, if I could put it that way. And so this is going to be helpful as you keep this in the back of your head uh, to read the whole letter with that perspective. Jesus is at work even in the fiery trials to make your faith radiant. Um, now, what I want to do is just nail down more deeply who, who, is, who needs this help, who needs this letter, who is Peter writing to? And so my first point is, is Peter's writing to, to, to communicate God's grace for the scattered. Right? Grace for the scattered. And this is super helpful, but right, he says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Right? And dispersion, well really, what, this is what Peter's doing. He's writing to Christians and he's using specific Old Testament words to help them better understand their experience. He's trying to connect God's Old Testament <laughs> to Jesus and say, this is, this is who you are. You're elect exiles and you're of the dispersion, those who've been scattered throughout the world. That's what dispersion means. You're scattered. And often what I do when I'm trying to understand a text, you just read other versions and, and the New American Standard gives you this description of an exile. So here's, here's what it says for the same verse. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout these places, modern-day Turkey, Asia, Bithynia, right? So here's, here's what an exile is. You're, you have a home, but you're a stranger in your own home. You're a stranger in a strange land, and you've been scattered throughout, according to God's will, right? You're scattered throughout the world. So it's disorienting. So Peter's writing to people who don't feel comfortable in their culture, where they find themselves living. They don't feel comfortable because they've made their allegiance to Jesus, and he's going to give them all kinds of reasons of why they don't feel comfortable. And this is normal for the Christian life. Right? We have a home, but this is not our home because of Jesus. So if you want to better understand what an exile is, a resident alien Right, kids, aliens, it's not from another planet, right, another country. <laughs> right, uh, immigrants will help us understand what, what an exile is. Right. So when I was looking for a good illustration. Historians found a letter from an Irish immigrant in Albany in 1852. 
writing home to his fellow Irishmen about America. And this is what this person wrote. He said, I would not encourage any person to come here that could live comfortably at home because you're going to meet many difficulties if you come here. But anybody who's willing to work really, really hard for a living, this is the country for them. <laughs> right? And what he's alluding to is what every immigrant in any country has ever faced is not only do you have to adjust to being a foreigner, uh, to a new world, a new language, a new set of values, people who just see the world differently than you, you also have to deal with misunderstandings uh, or sometimes flat-out distrust and hatred, what people call xenophobia, right? Cruel words where you're, you're publicly being made very aware that you're not of them, you're an outsider. Right? So Peter is writing to Christians in a particular place, in a particular time, and they're exiles. They're outsiders. They're resident aliens in the world. I mean, for some of them, this is literal. Right? I mean, they've been kicked out of Jerusalem, they've been kicked out of their homes for their allegiance to Jesus, and now they're in a new place and they're having to settle in. But, it, but it's really a theological category that we are citizens of heaven, but God has placed us here. And because of our allegiance to Jesus, right, we're strange. Right? That's why this is such a great word to help us understand what it means to be a Jesus follower. Because on the one hand, if you're an exile, a resident alien, a resident stranger, you're a resident. So get comfortable. This is your home. This is where God has planted you. Right? Live like you have a green card. You got a job. You have neighbors. You have people to get to know and love and pray for. Um, this is the place where God has scattered you. <laughs> right? You're a resident. And we know what this feels like, right? You know what it feels like to, to be a resident? That feeling when you've been away from home and you finally climb back into your bed. <laughs> I'm home. <laughs> but being in exile also means don't get too comfortable. That's what Peter's going to talk about. Because this world is never going to be your home. You're always going to feel somewhat like an outsider. It's never going to feel fully safe because we still live in a world filled with death and with suffering, with fiery trials. And so on the one hand, you're called to move in, right? We're starting to get to what our theology of Daniel. You're called to move in and get to know your neighbors. Live out your exile in front of the pagans, those who don't know who God is. That's, that's chapter 2, verse 11. But on the flip side, you should just expect to be uncomfortable. Right? Feel the tension yet? I mean, have, have you felt the tension in the last year? Right? This is our home. But especially, all right, we're about a year in. A year ago, we were all terrified just to leave our homes, just wondering what was going to happen. Right? This world is not our home. And so what this letter is for, right, Christians are strange by God's design. We are exiles called to obey Jesus, and that's what this letter is for. This letter is to, to help you better understand your identity in Christ, why that makes you strange, and then how to obey Jesus. How do you obey Jesus in a culture that, that sees you as strange? Right? So here's why we're strange. We're not uh, just vaguely spiritual people. Peter's very specific here. We follow Jesus. Right? You're, he lays out all these words, and we're going to get into the details. 
But you're, you're following the Jesus who was crucified, whose blood was shed for you, who was a specific person in human history, which means your spirituality is, is grounded in human history. This is a true story. These are based on true events. And as soon as you say spirituality is specific, that makes you strange in our culture, right? That this is the truth, because Jesus said, I am the truth. Right. So we can, get, we can get more specific. Look at the strange language used to describe who you are as a Christian. You are elect exiles. Elect means chosen. What are you chosen to do? To obey Jesus. And as soon as you say that out loud, my life exists to obey Jesus, <laughs> that makes you weird. Called to be strangely radiant for Jesus' sake. Right, we can, right, obedience, what does that mean, right? We can run through a few of the commandments that make Christians strange. I think this will be helpful. Um, we'll just run through a few of them. Remember the Sabbath. Right, that's, we're called to obey Jesus in the context of his commands, and, and one of the commands we're, we're told to do is to rest. Right? So as soon as you say, work is not my life, or even more, my career is not my Lord and Master Jesus is, and so resting one day in seven, that's a way of publicly saying, my time is not my own. Right? Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And because he is Lord of me, <laughs> that means he is Lord of my time. And as soon as you say, Jesus tells me how to spend my time, that's going to make you strange. Even more specific, when you show up on the Lord's Day, and you're showing your neighbors. This is what it's like in the Northeast and in a non-Bible-minded area. When you show up for church, whether online or in person, and say, I am carving out my Sunday. Right? It's a sign to, to yourself, to your family, to your neighbors, that you exist to obey Jesus. His gospel organizes my week. Right? That's one. That'll make you strange. If you want to... Another way that Peter's going to help you be strange, it's, it's in a, an application of the honor your parents command, where theologians have noticed that uh, the honor your parents really is after honoring those that God has put in authority over you. And Peter's going to say strange things like, you should honor the emperor. Honor him. Right? He's an authority, and he's not a nice person. He's actually going to put many of you to death. And he may very well be the cause of your suffering, but honor him. All right. How are you doing with that? <laughs> this goes right after our Americanness. Right? But if you honor people in authority, that's going to make you strange, even as you hold people in authority accountable for the, the purposes that God put them in authority, right? So elders at the end of First Peter are called not to use their position of power uh, for their own wealth or gain. Don't rule with domineering power. Don't be a bully. Right? The commandments after people using power the way Jesus used power. Just the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Right? We have a peculiar relationship with power as Christians. Peter's going to help us deal with that, but it's going to make you strange. Uh, don't commit murder. Christians are against any unjust taking of life. And, and Jesus is really specific on you can, you can break that commandment just with a temper tantrum, just by being angry. But you know what made Christians strange in Peter's day? 
They forgave. Forgiveness. They they didn't just forgive their own family members. They even forgave people outside of the church. I mean, that's part of what Peter is writing about. If you are suffering under the cruelty of a master, um, don't fight back with vengeance. Bear it because it is a good thing for you to suffer for doing good because that's what Jesus did for you. And if you forgive 70 times 7, that's going to make you strange because what planet are you from? that you're still pursuing me after you've been hurt. Right? For our larger catechism says, you know, the, the sixth commandment, don't kill, don't, I mean, don't murder, it means you're always ready to be reconciled, you're patiently bearing uh, and forgiving of injuries, and you return good for evil. <laughs> right? Don't steal. Be generous. Right? It's well documented that Christians were strange in Peter's day because they adopted everyone's poor, not just their own. Right? Ordinarily, people helped their only family or their tribe, but with Christians, what they were actively doing was looking out into the world as resident aliens, as strangers, and saying, okay, those people are suffering. I'm going to care for them too. They were adopting baby, abandoned baby girls. Because girls were abandoned at an extraordinary rate because everybody wanted baby boys. They were famous for caring for their own widows, but even widows of the community. It got so bad eventually in the 3rd or 4th century where the Roman emperor finally noticed, and he calls Christians atheists. He says, you know how it's been advanced? Their love to strangers. Their love to strangers, their care for the dead, they bury the dead, whether theirs or not. Um, it's a scandal that there's not a single Jew, he wrote, who's a beggar, and that these godless Galileans care not only for their poor, but for ours as well. But those who are under us don't get any help from us. <laughs> right? Because they were so scandalously generous, these Christians, uh, to their neighbors, right, they started to get praise. They started to get noticed. They started to... They were noticed as strange. Uh, what, you want to be strange? You can go with the ninth commandment. Then we'll stop with this one. But don't bear false witness. Right, we're called to tell the truth. This is out for Jesus' sake. Right, if you want to feel like an exile, start to care for the name and reputation of people who do not believe like you. All right. I mean, think about that in our current political climate. This is the, the larger catechism again, right? It's, it's going after what this command is after. And it says, here's how you don't bear false witness. You actually are love and rejoice that they have a good reputation and that you are grieved when they screw up, that you might actually go out of your way to cover someone else's weaknesses, and you cover for someone else's screw-ups. You should freely acknowledge what they're good at. You should defend their innocence. Be ready to receive a good report. Uh, you should be unwilling to admit an evil report. You should discourage tale-bearers. <laughs> right? Discourage fake news. So saying you should love and care for the reputation of someone else's name with the same fury you, you defend yourself. <laughs> That's going to make you strange in our culture, right? 
where you speak good, where you speak with gentleness and respect, as Peter's going to talk about in chapter 3. And this is the point, right? If you want to be strange, this is what Peter's teaching us to do, is to live out as our identity as Jesus followers, that we want to obey him and do it for his sake, but we also recognize that as exiles, Jesus' friends, his loved ones, we do this in the presence of those who don't know him. It's verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Right? Dear friends, Peter writes, I urge you as exiles to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's what this letter's for. That as you see grace and you live that grace out among your neighbors, right, you're, you're being salt and light in the world. That's what Peter's implying here. And so... It's two things, right? You're a resident alien. Do people see you as strange for your allegiance to Jesus, right? We're all weird in our own way, <laughs> right? Do people see you as strange for Jesus' sake? Right? Are people seeing you as weird because of fill in the blank? We're exiles. We're supposed to have a growing discomfort with our life in this world. Right? Do others see it? How's it going for you? Do you? Have you ever offended somebody because you believe the gospel and you've told someone else about it? Because the gospel itself can be offensive. Right? Or, or on the flip side, <laughs> if people never want to talk about religion with you, right? maybe you're not living out of your exileness enough to be strange by speaking with gentleness and respect, to love them so you can be heard. Right? And I could add, right, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe the God of the Bible, do you, do you feel your strangeness here, especially in light of the last year? I mean, exile is also the story of the human race. We were once in God, with God, in paradise, and then out of, because of disobedience, we've been cast out, and that's the whole story of the human race, a tale of sorrow and loss, living under the tyranny of death. But if we were made for this world filled with death by natural selection, by a blind process of evolution, then death would just be a natural thing. But it never feels like a natural thing. Do you, do you feel your strangeness? Right. And if, if this world is all there is and all life is natural, life should be perishable, fading, and constantly ruined by human selfishness, and that, that would be the natural world. But nobody ever is satisfied with that. So perhaps that's God calling you to consider that you're made for another world, for Jesus. We're exiles as Christians, and by faith what happens is Jesus says, I am going to bring you into my kingdom, and now I'm going to hold on to you and take you from this life <laughs> and give you a hope that is unparalleled, a new world after death. That's next week's sermon. All right, so, exiles. People who speak this way, says the writer of the Hebrews, make it clear that they're looking for a homeland. You're looking for home. Because you've been thinking about a particular land that you, from which you're actually from, a physical place, you would have opportunity to go back. But because we desire a better country, 
that is a heavenly one. Well, God is not ashamed to be called our God. He gives us a city, a hope, a future. So, grace for the exiled. Peter's going to help us live out our identity as strangers in a strange land here in Saratoga County to help us obey in front of our neighbors. <laughs> now, second point, we're loved in exile. How in the world do you live up to that? Right? I mean, I listed a bunch of the commandments that way on purpose. Right? How do you live as an exile? And the answer, Peter's answer is, this is God's plan, and he has planned to grace you with what you need to do this. Right? So you look at these words, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. That's the answer to that question, but because it's, those are some strange words, we've got to break it down. One, you're elect. You feel this way because God wants you to feel this way. He chose you in love. And I don't know where you're at with the doctrine of election. Unfortunately, due to theological debates, this word gets bad press. But elect, the way Peter is using this, it's, it's going after your heart. It's a heart-melting word. It's trying to show you how loved you are in Christ. It's not supposed to get your blood pressure up. It's supposed to show you, look at how much you are loved in the gospel. You are chosen by your Father in heaven according to his foreknowledge. Right. I love the way Ed Clowney talks about this. He was a seminary pr president in Westminster. And yeah, he says, look, to be chosen doesn't mean you're a choice. Right? <laughs> you're, not the, you're not the choicest selection of humans. That, that's the doctrine of election. He chooses people by grace and by grace alone. And the way God talks about it, this chosen language, this is all Old Testament. It comes from Deuteronomy 7 when it says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be his people, his treasured possession, out of everybody who's on the face of the earth. So Deuteronomy 7, 6. And he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people set, that the Lord set his love on you. For you were the fewest of all people. But here's why he chose you. It is because the Lord loves you. And he's keeping his promise that he swore to your fathers. Right? The only reason we are strangers for Jesus' sake is because he set his love on us before we were born. He wanted us. That's an astounding thing. Right? That you're loved by sheer grace. If there was any reason that God chose you, um, it would not be grace. Right? There's, there's moments where, when we talk about it with marriage, right? Why do you love your spouse? Right? If you say, well, I love her, and I chose her, and I married her because, right? She's a good cook. Or... She takes care of me or, you know, whatever service she does for me. As soon as you do that, right, you're, you're setting up a conditional relationship. It's not a healthy relationship. I mean, the, the marriage vows themselves are unconditional. For grace to be grace, right, God sets his love. We are elect simply because he loves us. There's no other reason. All right? 
So why are you following Jesus? Why do you care what he thinks? Why would you ever go to war to, to fight against your desires that feel supernatural, or that feel natural, I should say? Why would you risk being socially awkward? The answer is, God loves you. He's made you strange. He showed you Jesus. Right? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it doesn't mean that God looked down the quarters of time and said, oh, look at that person, they, they chose me. Right? If God chose you because you chose him, that's a condition. That's not grace. Right? Now, foreknowledge in the Bible it really means foreloved. You were known before. Right? So Jeremiah, this young guy ready to go preach the gospel to a whole bunch of people that are going to get mad at him. And God says, hey, you don't feel called to this, but I knew you before. You, before. I knew you in the womb. I loved you. I prepared you for this. Right? See, foreknowledge is about God setting his love on people because he knew them in Christ before they were born. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. Just rest in this. The reason you know that Jesus died for you right now is because from all eternity, God had a plan for you. And that entire plan is completely shaped by a love that your Heavenly Father set on you way back when before the sun was cast into the sky. This is what I'm trying to show you. To be elect is to be loved greater than you can imagine. I, it's hard to get our minds wrapped around it. The only thing we can compare to is that excitement as, as a young couple decides to have kids for the first time. Right? You don't know who this person's going to be, what they're going to be like, what they're going to do, but you're, you're planning to set your love on them before they exist. That's the only category we have. This is even greater than that. And it's designed to get you singing. That's, that's verse 3. That's what Peter does when he's, he throws all this grace language at you. And then he breaks out into sing, singing, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he caused you to be born again. Right? Your father, it's a literal, we'll, we'll get into this in a little more detail, but it, it's the father's will that you trusted Jesus. He caused you to be born again in the same way the Father is involved in creating life for, for new humans. Right? It's a gift. And it gets more specific because, right, it's not just this, this knowledge before the foundation of the world. How do you actually believe right now? It's through the sanctification of the Spirit. Right? And I know ordinarily we think of sanctification as, as like, how am I doing lately? How am I becoming more like Jesus? And I think Peter is using that in a different way here. I think he's, he's focusing on the fact that you were chosen. Right? Election always comes with God's purpose, God's plan for you. You're set apart, you're sanctified for holy use to obey Jesus. Right? So, how did you come to trust Jesus? How did you come to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be a stranger in a strange land, to be a resident alien here for Jesus' sake? Peter's answer is the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit marked you and convinced you that the gospel is true. I'll show it to you. Look at, look at verses 10 to 12 in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. 
It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of the Messiah, the Christ, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So what was the Holy Spirit doing before Jesus? He was showing the prophets what Jesus, the Messiah, would be like, that he would suffer and that he would become king and he would be the one that all people would follow and, and follow into the new heavens and new earth, right? Subsequent glories. But then it comes personal to us, right? It says it was real to those guys, the prophets, that they weren't serving themselves, but you who believe the gospel, you Christians. How? In the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So connect those dots. Verse 2, you're sanctified through the Spirit. Verse 12, how did the, what did the Spirit do? Well, he preached the good news to you through another Christian. The Spirit's job is to show you the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that he had to suffer on your behalf and then rise again on the third day, and he is now ruling and reigning for his church. So that's the good news. God set his love on you before the foundation of the world, and then he sent his spirit to hunt you down to help you believe the gospel. You're part of this, this is part of the plan. It's, it's part of the Old Testament promise. Ezekiel 36, you know, God's people were terrible at obedience. We talked about that earlier. And Ezekiel 36, written to those who are part of the dispersion, that's the context. God says, here's what's going to happen in the future when the Messiah shows up. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes so you actually obey my rules. (laughs) It's a gift. It's more grace language. Right? So if, if being strange in a strange land... Life in exile sounded way above your ability. (laughs) Welcome to the club. That's what it means to be a Christian. You need help. You need the Holy Spirit. And Peter's showing these Christians is that you have the spirit of the Messiah, Jesus, convincing you of the gospel to make you ready and willing to live, to obey. And because Peter's a good Trinitarian, the end focuses on Jesus. Right? God sets his love on us. He chooses us to live in exile. He gives us the spirit to help us believe for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. And those two things go together. Right? It's the good news of the gospel, right? He, he gives us grace, and even, even our obedience is a part of that grace. Right? But maybe you're wrestling with this question. I don't want to run too far ahead of where, where your mind's at. If you're still stuck on election, and your question is, what if I'm not chosen? What about those who aren't chosen? And Charles Spurgeon, we talked about him this morning. I've got, apparently today is a Spurgeon day for my illustrations. <laughs> right? He would always get these questions. Pastor, help me understand predestination. Pastor, help me understand what it means to be elect. And one day he went to visit a sick man who was just agonizing whether or not to take his medicine and And he said, Pastor, I don't know whether I'm predestined to live or die. Help me. 
And here's what Spurgeon told him. Well, if you don't take your medicine, the doctor tells me you're predestined to die. <laughs> but if you do take your medicine, he tells me you're predestined to live. <laughs> he takes, takes the medicine. Right, and this is, this is how the gospel works in real space and real time, right? We're talking about what God is doing at work in you, but the way it works from our side of things is come to Jesus. Take your medicine. And come to, to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to Jesus to receive the sprinkling with his blood, which we'll talk about. Receive the forgiveness of sins and obey him. Right? If you have any of those anxieties about whether or not you're cho- chosen, um, whether or not God is at work in you, whether or not Jesus is pleased with you, that's a sign the Holy Spirit is working to sanctify you, to convince you of the truth. Because according to Peter, this one long chain, you wouldn't even have those thoughts if the Spirit wasn't at work. It's a gift. Right? Now, what is, if you do come to Jesus, what does he expect you to do? He expects you to keep his commandments. And so this phrase, sprinkling of his blood and to obey Jesus is all wrapped up in an Old Testament story. This is what Peter's going to do. He's, he's just layers things. Um, but it's all wrapped from Exodus 24 that Norm read for us earlier. And there's a lot more here than I can get into. It's astounding the way Peter says, hey, Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament that you're called to obey. But here's what happens in the context, right? God has saved his people from slavery in Egypt and led them through the desert to Mount Sinai, and they're entering into a covenant relationship together. This is like the wedding ceremony, right? And what happens is Moses... God reads the covenant details. Who are you? I am the Lord your God who who loved you. I set you free from slavery in Egypt. I loved you first. That's part of the the words that God would have read, or Moses would have read. And because you are mine, here's then how you should live. Moses reads God's words, his commands, and that's where you get that great statement, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. right. Think back to a, a wedding ceremony, right? Not only do you have the vows, we also do it, the, in, the intention. Do you intend to love this person? I do. And then you take the vow to do it. That's kind of what's happening here. Right? So after you got the commitment to love the God who loved them first, uh, the intention anyway, Moses goes and gets the blood of these animals, and half is filled in a massive basin, and half is just sprinkled and thrown onto the altar which is a really important point, but hold on to that. And then they read the words again and say, here's all the commandments. Here's what's expected of you. Here's how you obey. And for us, we just think the Ten Commandments. Here's how you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's how you love your neighbor as yourself. And they again say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And I know you just want to say, what a bunch of overconfident fools. (laughs) But grace is sprinkled all through this covenant. So don't don't knock on them, because look. After they say these words that we'll be obedient, Moses takes the blood, sprinkles it on the people. That's the actual language here. 
And then he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And here's what's going on. I know this is strange and this is like a cross-cultural thing. But the way this started, right? Here's the good news of the gospel. Here's their intention to obey. Here comes shed blood thrown onto the altar saying, You need grace, forgiveness to even be in relationship with me. Right? The very first place the blood goes is the place where God promises to pay for their sins in order to be re- in relationship with them. That's amazing. And then the second part, after they commit to obey, right? this is still all one relationship. God's grace has set them apart. They're now sprinkled in order to be marked as belonging to God and set aside for his purpose, which is to obey to be a kingdom of priests to the nations in front of their neighbors. Right. So there's, there's the peace. It's grace, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, and obedience together. Now, why does Peter connect that to Jesus? Well, what the law of Moses was powerless to do, which was change the heart to get people to actually obey, to want the Lord of the covenant, to love him, enough to sacrifice for him. Well, that's what Christ makes possible through the shedding of his blood. That's what gives you the gift of the Spirit. How? Well, you you have Jesus, the Lord of the covenant, from heaven who became down to earth, become an outsider, a resident alien here on this planet. As Eugene Peterson describes it, right? He He moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) He incarnated. He became human. But he was the perfect exile. He came to his own people, and they didn't know him. They didn't love him. They didn't accept him. They didn't show him hospitality. The world did not know him either. He was an exile to every... He was an outsider to every human being who ever lived in that moment. That's that's John's argument in John chapter 1. And yet, in love, Jesus committed to do what we could never do for ourselves, which is obey, keep God's law perfect. He went to the cross, suffered outside the city, the shame of being an outsider, taking the punishment we deserve so that we could receive the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, be made resident aliens, have God be our home, and then sent, having been saved by grace, called to obey Jesus. It's amazing. I mean, what, what, what Peter has done by saying, you are saved for obedience to Jesus and to keep his commands. He's saying what God did on Exodus 24 on Mount Sinai was all waiting for the day when we could plug Jesus into the place where the animal was slain for the sins of God's people. And then what happened after they were sprinkled? Shown that they belonged to him. They were sent out to obey, sent out to the nations. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do for the church, right? You're saved by grace, and now the whole story ends. Now that you're mine, get out. Go live your faith scattered throughout the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father who loved those people, in the name of the Spirit who will show them the truth, 
in the name of the Son who died for them. It's astounding. Go into the nations. So, how do you, we'll tie all this together. Peter has just dumped a whole lot of gospel on you in a, in a few good words, and he's going to do that over and over again. Grace, that's how he ends, he begins with grace. You're loved, you're chosen. He's going to end with grace. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Right? So he's going to make a big deal about Jesus. He's going to make a big deal about grace, and he's going to make a big deal then of because you're loved this way, here's how you live. Right? And it's all summed up right here. Right? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> so think about it this way. Why are you troubled as a Christian? Because God loved you first. Because he sent his spirit to show you the truth, to actually care about Jesus, because he made you his own. And that is the source of all your trouble. (laughs) Right? God started this mess. And according to this, he's promising to finish it. Because Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice because Cain killed him. Jesus' blood is crying out permanently for your forgiveness from now and forevermore. It's the blood of the eternal covenant. It's astounding. And then he sends you out armed with grace and peace in abundance. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so whatever you get out of this letter, it's going to be an abundance of grace, and it's going to be an abundance of peace. Shalom. How do you be a peacemaker? This is going to make you radiant, give your, make your faith radiant. Here's one way it looked like in, in church history, and I'll end with this. Uh, Perpetua is a famous martyr in Felicity. I don't know if you remember the story or not, but they, Perpetua was a young lady. She was wealthy. She was pregnant. She got catechized, and she knew that if she made the commitment to follow Jesus, it was going to end with her, her violent death. That's what makes her story so amazing is she still said, I do, knowing it was going to cause great suffering. And what made her faith radiant was the way that her love for Jesus or her love being loved by Jesus um, was the way she was still able to think about other people in the arena. You know, you picture the gladiator arena and loud, loads of screaming people all watching, crying out for her blood along with whoever else was in there. Right? Well, there's another lady in, in the arena with her named Felicity. And Felicity gets steamrolled by a, a, a mad heifer. Right? She just gets thrown in the air. And in front of everybody, right, when, you're, when life and death things are on the line, you're supposed to think about yourself more than anyone else. Well, Jesus showed a better way, a strange way, to think about others first. And so what Perpetua did, she actually ran over helped Felicity up. I think she got ran over again by the heifer as she helped up uh, Felicity. And that it said that she said out loud to everybody listening, stand fast and look out for one another. And all they did was tick off their executioners and they were killed with the sword instead of by the animals. But what everyone watching was saying, who in the world are these people and what planet are they from? (laughs) Their faith was radiant because they started to live out the commands of Jesus as those who were sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, covered by his grace, which is going to change the way you live. 
and you have grace and peace following you every day for that journey. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the grace of Jesus. We thank you for your love that, that chose us before we even knew that you existed. And we thank you for the spirit who helps us believe. We thank you most of all that you do not leave us alone. And if there are those listening uh, who are wrestling with who Jesus is, I pray that you would show them that that too is a sign that you are drawing them to yourself in love, that you want to claim them. And for us as a church, I pray you would um, well, equip us to do every good work that you have planned for us, that we might be a place where grace and peace are seen because Jesus is with us and we want to obey him. So yeah, Lord, we leave here as loved exiles, ready to do your will, because Jesus died for us. And we pray these things, as, even as we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.